episode 370 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express are not shared by our firms, institutions, clients, family, friends, or pets. Uh, but uh, it's going to be an entertaining news roundup. We've got Mark McCarthy, who teaches law at Georgetown and does policy analysis at the Brookings Institution. Mark, great to have you. Thanks. Good to be here. Okay. And Gus Hurwitz, who teaches law at the University of Nebraska, is here. Great to have you too, Gus. Fortunately, nothing's happened since I was last on. Well, certainly on public policy and legislation, that's probably true. Uh, and Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator, responsible for some of the best online debates of the year. Dmitry, great to have you. Thanks for having the non-lawyer on the call. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Dimitri, I, I think we're in the second stage of the Kaseya breach where it's starting to get patched and everybody's asking what the White House is going to do do about it. Uh, and you had a lot of free advice in a nice White House or Washington Post op-ed. So I'll ask you, what should Joe Biden be doing about the uh, ransomware attacks? Well, Matthew Rozhansky of, of the Wilson Center and I wrote a couple of op-eds over the last few months on how to negotiate with Putin. And in part particularly on this issue, which is becoming a critical national security issue, I think most of our view listeners will agree with that that when your uh, colonial pipeline is going down, when meat processors are going down, when small businesses are being taken down with ransomware, this is reaching the point of no return and the point where the administration has to act. And the reality is that there's one person on the planet that is capable of stopping these attacks, and his name is Vladimir Putin. Not because he's directing them, not because he's involved with them, but because the criminals that are operating largely from Russia the responsible for these attacks are well known to his security services. Uh, a visit from the FSB to their houses to tell them to knock it off would have the desired effect. He can certainly go even further and start arresting and prosecuting them. But the reality is that without significant pressure on Putin, it's not going to be in his interest to do so. And we've argued that the Biden administration should approach this in a very realistic fashion, understanding that we're not going to get a broad cyber agreement with Russia anytime soon. And frankly, a lot of the things that we have been complaining about lately, like solar winds, I don't even view as uh, violating norms. That seems like traditional espionage. But this is the one issue where we can make progress precisely because it's not that important to Putin doesn't care about these people, the criminals that are doing these ransomware attacks. He doesn't know them. They're just young thugs in Moscow, St. Petersburg that may have some connections with lower level officials in the security services, but they're not the oligarchs. They're not connected to his administration in any significant fashion. So and they haven't made, really made enough money yet to prop up his autocracy. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars, which is a drop in the bucket for Russia and is, is not at all meaningful from a, from a strategic perspective. So this is the one issue where he can easily make good on, on his promise to work with us on cybercrime as he did in Geneva without any domestic repercussions. But he's um, not going to do that without significant pressure from the administration. So we argued in the Washington Post op-ed that we should threaten sanctions against the things that he actually really does care about. The energy sector, the large gas and oil companies in Russia that are contributing a huge chunk 
of the annual revenues to the Russian government, that would have the desired effect of making him listen. So we will see if the Biden administration follows up on it. But it's important not to mix things up. I think it's important to really be focused and say ransomware is our thing that we're going to confront Russia on. Let's not throw in the, the attempted RNC hack that a lot of the media went kind of berserk over la, la, last week, even though by all accounts the, the hack did not, was not actually successful. And even if it was, has all the, the signs of being traditional espionage. This is what, after all, intelligence agencies do. They break into political institutions. They steal information. No evidence that this was like 2016 and the DNC hack, where there was actually going to be an attempt to do influence operations, in large part because of who was doing it. It was not GRU, the Russian military intelligence. It was the SVR, Russian Foreign Service, that has not been involved in active measures operations during elections in the past. So I, I think we need to be focused. Let's keep our eye on the ball, and that is ransomware, and, and keep the pressure up on Putin to deal with that. So I, I, you're right that he's not going to do anything unless we find a pressure point. Uh, the president said he was going to strike back with cyber if he didn't see progress. I thought that was certainly not consistent with your advice and maybe not consistent with actually being effective. I actually uh, don't disagree with striking back in cyber. I think, I think there should be multi-pronged strategy. The most effective, of course, would be getting Putin to do something. In the absence of that, or while we're waiting, we should absolutely be doing whatever we can to disrupt operations via cyber. That's not a long-term solution, but you can slow things down. You can cause a lot of havoc among, amongst these groups. You can try to steal their money, as we did last month with, with the returning part of the colonial ransom. So those are all things that are, that are good to do, and we should be doing them. We should just be under no illusion that alone will solve it. Yeah. Do you think that by making a big deal out of it, we've actually made it harder for him to, for Putin to do something useful? Uh, now it looks as though he's backing down on, in the face of... Th I, th I think that we had no choice but to make a big deal out of it. When you have lines all across the East Coast with people trying to put gas in their cars and some of them even filling up their plastic bags against all uh, sensible advice, you, you can't not, under that political pressure, under that media pressure, respond, respond forcefully. But we do argue in our op-ed that any communication of threats to Vladimir Putin needs to be done privately, not publicly. Um, if you do it publicly, you will corner him and, and he will refuse to act because he does not want to be seen domestically or internationally as doing America's bidding. But if you deliver it quietly in private, send a message that, hey, if we don't see progress here, we're gonna, you're much more likely to get a desired outcome. And we do know that the Biden administration has said that they've started the working group level discussions with the Russian officials. They have passed information on criminals in Russia that they wanna see action on. So we shall see in the coming weeks if there's any progress here. So what, what's the price that Putin wants for this? I assume he wants Viktor Bout back or boot or has somebody else in mind that some other policy concession from the U.S. may be agreeing that we're not going to screw with his elections if he won't screw with ours. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He will want to try to extract concessions from us. I don't think the Biden administration will be in a position to do anything major with Russia. Just politically, that will not be tolerable to Congress and, and the public. 
at this point, and you certainly don't want to be blackmailed into extracting, in, into giving up concessions as you are with these ransomware attacks. I will say this though, uh, MIT Tech Review had a great art of this uh, past week on how we have tried to cooperate with Russia in the past, and all of our efforts cooperating on cybercrime over the last 20 years have been stymied talks about a great case of Game Over Zeus botnet that U.S. law enforcement was working on with the Russian law enforcement, with the Ukrainian law enforcement. But when it came down to arresting some of these kinpins, and some of them are responsible for ransomware operations as well, like Max Yukabets and Evgeny Bogachev, who are both on the FBI most wanted list, no action uh, took place. And um, these people are still operating freely from Russia. So it underscores how hard it will be to actually get them to act on these people and, and arrest them in no small part because they're paying off for protection. There, there is no doubt in my mind that they're paying off lower level, mid-level officials within security services to make sure that they're protected both against government interference as well as from traditional Russian, Russian criminal groups muscling in on their business. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think there's any truth to the rumor that Russia has asked that jumping American red lines be added as a demonstration uh, sport to the 2021 Olympics. But they certainly have plenty of practice. And I, my, my sense on this is that Putin will really have to be persuaded that President Biden has a new way of hurting him. I'm just not sure that threatening to go after oil and gas with sanctions, which we could have done for years and have mostly been persuaded not to by our or that attacking Russian debt sales, which raises questions about U.S. reliability as a as a financial market, is going to happen. Do you think there really is a prospect that those things are in on the list of options? Well, here's what's different here, right? When people were clamoring for sanctions post the Ukrainian conflict or, or annexation of Crimea or assassination of former spies or dissidents, none of those issues as, as important as they were touched core national security concerns of the United States in the way that ransomware is, right? None of them impacted our energy supply. None of them impacted our ability to procure meat or, or get to a dentist's office. This is the issue that is now impacting the middle class. And President Biden ran on a campaign of foreign policy for the middle class. So if he's gonna hold true to that promise, he's gonna have to act in a way that the past uh, US administrations really didn't want to vis-a-vis -vis Russia because as much as we care about Ukraine, as much as we care about Crimea, let's be honest, it's not critical to our core national security interests. This is. Yeah. Uh, last question, is that we now have a little bit of time to assess it. It sounded like a very big deal when we were reading the, the Revil press releases about it, and they were claiming large numbers. Uh, and it certainly did shut down some places, including a supermarket in Sweden. But as we've had time to look at it, is it as, as widespread as everybody was afraid it would be? It is absolutely widespread. We know there are 1,500 victims around the world, many of them in the United States. What is different about them, though, is that these are small and medium businesses. These are your dental offices, your real estate agent, your insurance broker, your library, in some cases, small hospitals. So they're not the types of organizations that are on the national news when they go down. So we're not seeing much of the press effects from this attack, but it doesn't mean that it is any less impactful. And I would argue it's actually more impactful than some of the previous attacks we have seen against big multinationals or Fortune 500 companies. 
because those are the types of organizations that are least prepared to pay a ransom, to pay for recovery of their data because they are, they've already been hit by COVID over the last 18 months. They're uh, running on a shoestring budget. So those are exactly the types of people and businesses we should be protecting. Okay. So uh, the White House has been busy this week. They also put out an enormous executive order that name checks practically every industry for anti-competition or for competition reforms, telling agencies from the agriculture department to the FTC to do more about competition. It's an odd document in many ways. I mean, the spurring competition is not exactly a partisan issue by itself, but not all of this stuff has anything to do with competition. And the comprehensiveness of it is striking. It's almost like the State of the Union address, where if you don't get name-checked, you're going to spend a year with people mocking you in the hall. Gus, what are you? So what, you want, what, what's behind here? Yeah, so uh, there's so much here, and I'll try to be short, but you're exactly right. There's something for everyone to love and or hate in this executive order. And I, I say that because it touches on everything from uh, airlines to banking to pharmaceuticals and drug companies to platform competition to eyeglasses to internet services to agriculture and meat packers to railways. I could go on. Amazingly enough, there are 72 specific proposals in here, and as best I can tell, and uh, Mark and uh, I were we were talking about this before we got started. This appears to largely be derived from a Center for Equitable Growth white paper that Tim Wu, now of the uh, National Economic Council, uh, was involved with uh, writing a couple of months ago before he uh, was elevated to serve as a special assistant in the National uh, Economic Council. So th this is likely his fingerprints uh, are all over here. A few things that we should uh, touch on that are in here. First, there's some non-controversial uh, stuff in here that I think uh, most folks would think of as good. Occupational licensing reform, reforms to non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses have their value, but I think there's widespread acceptance that they've been used overly broadly in recent years. There is well-intentioned third rail stuff. There's stuff involving a right to repair rules, especially in agriculture. And th this is a legitimately hard issue. Again, companies locking down their products and not allowing uh, third-party uh, repairs to them. That's understandably problematic, but also there's important vertical integration and consumer protection stuff here. And also important security stuff. When you're talking about complex machines, complex equipment like tractors that could very easily be targets of nefarious actors, especially as they're increasingly networked, opening them up to third-party repairs also uh, opens them up to a potentially nefarious actors. So things get complicated. And there's also just the laundry list of left-leaning policy dreams here. Do something about net neutrality. That's obviously a call for uh, the FCC to do something about net neutrality. And I'll say- well, And basically it says, bring back the old regs that the last administration threw out. So with, with this is like complete around circular, completely circular policy making, and they will finish that rulemaking about the time that the president is up for re-election. Or- well, the, So the fascinating things here first, if the president were serious about doing about something about net neutrality, he should have, and I still think he should, include it in the infrastructure bill. I mean, the basic challenge with net neutrality is unclear statutory authority. 
come up with a legislative compromise, put it in there, put this issue to... It's going to be really interesting uh, when we get a fifth FCC commissioner, they are going to do something about net neutrality. We didn't need this in an executive order, but by putting it in here, he's arguably making it a little more political. And I'm really interested to see what happens with the president's fifth FCC commissioner or commissioner uh, nominee after the switcheroo he pulled with Lena Khan at the FCC, installing her as chair without disclosing to the Republicans that was his plan. I think that there could be some demands for blood on the fifth FCC seat when uh, the president gets around to eventually nominating someone. I think that might be where uh, the Republicans decide to get some uh, vengeance for the president breaking tradition on how he approached the FTC uh, chairmanship. Uh, so didn't Tim Wu actually give net neutrality its name? He could hardly leave it out of the, the Wu agenda for the Biden administration. The net neutrality is what made Tim Wu, and he's more than net neutrality nowadays, but it, it certainly is going to follow him, and he's going to follow it wherever uh, it goes. The last thing really to say about uh, the executive order, it's called uh, an executive order for promoting competition in the American economy. It really isn't a competition executive order. This is just economic regulation. It's not general uh, competition policy. This is sector by sector specific regulation. And it's notable that there isn't anything in here that seems to really be supporting or in line with uh, the House Democrats antitrust reform legislation that's been going through the legislative process. And I, I find it remarkable that this seems to be going orthogonal to that legislation. And it's almost implicitly a rebuke of that. And that, that seems to me pretty remarkable. I'm going to push back on that a little. I think this was Wu's price for going, joining the administration in a job that is just okay. Uh, and it's okay if you get to actually drive some policy, and otherwise you're sitting around kind of dealing with the issue of the day and, and a bunch of balky uh, departments. So this was important to him, and he knew what he wanted, uh, and none of the, the stuff that the Democrats and the, some of the Republicans were doing in uh, the House really spoke to him, or maybe he wasn't sure he could get any of it through when he put the agenda together at the think tank. So I think this is less of rebuke than a a simple coordination failure. So that could be right. The lack of any discussion or a seeming alignment is striking, but you're right, it could be a lack of coordination. And it is notable, one of the 72 items would create a White House competition policy position that would be led by or appointed by the director of the National Economic Council. So I wonder who that's going to be. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it, it, it... I do think that's the key thing, that last point, the competition Council. I think Tim Wu knew to stay home and mind his own knitting. All those things that the House is doing are, require new legislation. He can't do anything in that area. So he stayed home and minded what he can control, which is to help set up a process within the White House to push competition policy in all the regulatory agencies that he's got control over. And he's even looking for a change in the regulatory review process that OIRA runs which would require agencies to report on how their regulations would impact competition and reduce barriers to entry. So I, I think he's really pushing on the administrative stuff that he can control 
rather than trying to deal with legislative stuff. And what's your your sense of the prospects of this very ambitious agenda? I think it's mostly suggestions to agencies. If you look at the phrasing, it's all recommendations. I mean, for, for the FTC stuff, he's already got what he needs because his ally, Lena Khan, is already there. It doesn't make any changes in law and policy, just in administrative incentives. And a lot of, of, of what uh, Lena Khan wants to do is going to depend on whether or not the courts will validate what she does. It'll be interesting to see if her challenge to the Amazon MGM case, which was just announced on, on Friday, will, will make it through the courts after the challenge is finished with the administrative process. So there's a there's an element in which this is really a think tank paper turned into an executive order, and the price that he had to pay to do that is, since he didn't run, probably, I'm guessing, a very detailed process in which every single agency got to talk about all 72 of the things that affect them, uh, they, he said, I'll, I'll make this a suggestion. I'll ask you to look at this. I'm not going to tell you to do it because you might then appeal me to the president. So this is a kind of hunting license for the agencies, the ones that want to do what Tim Wu has asked them to do will now feel they have authority to go out and start doing it and they can resist the interagency kibitzing that would otherwise uh, occur. But the ones that don't much want to do it can just sit back and rope-a-dope it. Yeah, I mean, a lot will depend on who gets into the agencies. Rohit Chopra is going over to CFPB and one of the suggestions there is an open banking requirement that would uh, mimic what's being done in the United Kingdom. I think Rohit Chopper would be delighted to move ahead with that kind of thing. But as you say, it really does depend on who's in the agencies. There's very little enforcement authority, except through this regulatory review process, which of course doesn't apply to independent agencies. It only applies to executive branch agencies. And it's worth uh, noting one of those 72 items in the EO is a call for an open banking program similar to what we see in the All right. Well, just to complicate things further, House Republicans have their own legislative plan for competition and ending censorship in big tech that Jim Jordan has embraced after having fought all of the efforts to produce bipartisan antitrust legislation in the Judiciary Committee. Mark, can you give us a sense of what Jordan's proposing? Yeah, it's not all that complicated, and it's still just an outline, so we, we will have to wait and see what the details are. But he's got several ideas for speeding up antitrust proceedings and giving the state AGs a greater role in these uh, antitrust cases. Uh, but that's really not very likely to uh, rein in big tech to any significant degree. It, it also calls for various transparency requirements, but these are, are by now pretty standard fare in the congressional proposals to regulate social media content moderation processes. The one thing that's interesting is they, uh, they call for a kind of right of access to social media, and they do this through a, a reform of Section 230. And that's an interesting development because it keys into several other developments at the same time. When President, former President Trump sued the tech companies, he tried to make an, an argument that, that tech companies already have uh, 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 a common carriage status. And Section 230 was unconstitutional because it, it delegated to them the right to edit their own stuff, which they didn't have until Section 230 gave it to them. Now, that's totally crazy, and it's going to be thrown out. But the House Republicans are sort of going in the same direction 
by saying we want to have social media companies put under a kind of common carriage uh, situation, similar to what, what Justice Clarence Thomas was talking about in his opinion several months ago. But if you remember, he just said, if such a law ever gets to me, I'd be inclined to find it unconstitutional. He doesn't see that its current status. I mean, my own sense is that a common carriage rule is kind of crazy because it means that the social media company can't do anything about the legal but harmful hate speech and terrorist material and whatnot, the disinformation on their systems. If you want to give them some sort of regulatory control, I'd look more to broadcast regulation as a model than to common carriage, where you sort of tell the companies what you want them to do, and then outside of that, they're free to edit or publish or not publish whatever they feel. Yeah. I Okay, so I, I think the real message in the... Jordan proposal, which is, as you say, kind of a sketch, is that we really shouldn't expect the House effort on competition to produce a bipartisan result and probably a result of any sort, with the possible exception of a few small ball changes. There just really is not enough consensus yet. I think that remains to be seen. I mean, the whole process has gone behind closed doors where the the Democrats are trying to get their own house in order. And I think after they've done that, they may be able to reach out to one or two or five or 10 Republicans to join them. It's not going to be bipartisan in any any real sense. But they're, and they're, therefore they're, doomed when it gets to the Senate. If, they, if that's what they, that creates a real problem in the Senate, exactly. Okay, I think the, the the best story, the most interesting story of the week, actually, because it's so completely new and makes us think again about China and its policy, is what the Chinese government is doing to Didi, which is the Uber of uh, China, and was planning to do an IPO. Uh, and uh, has been dramatically undermined to the point where the Chinese government is telling phone companies not to put its app on on phones in the in the future. Dimitri, can you give us a sense of what has happened to Didi and what it tells us about China's tech policy? Well, of course, this is not just about Didi. This is about the overall crackdown that appears to be happening in China against the, the sector, uh, the tech sector, and particularly companies that they see as getting too cl- cozy with the United States by listing on U.S. exchanges, as Didi has done, as Ant wanted to do. Ant, of course, the subsidiary of Alibaba, led by Jack Ma, that uh, was going to have a huge IPO last year until those plan- plans were scuttled under pressure from Chinese government. And Jack Ma has since uh, pretty much disappeared from public scene. This is all an indication that she is continuing his path to total control of China and shutting down any attempts to for companies or individuals to have any individual policies that uh, may not be completely aligned and under control of the Chinese Communist Party. And this is a huge signal to U.S. investors. I think the U.S. investors are starting to wake up to the reality that investing in China may not be a safe bet when the Chinese government can intervene at any point. So it turns out uh, it wasn't the fact that there was genocide happening in Xinjiang, not the pretty much complete now annexation of Hong Kong, not the threats over Taiwan that would make U.S. business think twice about dealing with China. It was a realization that their own dollars would be at stake. Shock, I know. 
Yeah, uh, they're, they're the second to last industry to wake up to the risks of doing business in China and the possibility that you could get screwed when the political winds change. The last, of course, is Apple. They haven't quite figured it out, but it, it's going to come for them too. No, no, no doubt, no doubt. And, and the reality that, that these companies need to appreciate is that China doesn't care about them, certainly doesn't care about Western companies, and its long-term objective is to kick all of them out of China. They think it's unconscionable that these companies dare to make money on Chinese consumers and exploit the Chinese work, workforce. They tolerate it only while it's useful, but they're going to crack down on it. And in general, as Neil Ferguson, who thought it would be a good idea to invest in the enemy that we have in this new Cold War? And, and who thought that a, a bet on totalitarianism, totalitarianism is going to turn out well? For anyone. This was all foreseen, of course, and many of us have foreseen it for decades, and the chickens are now coming. Yeah, so the nominal objection on the part of the Chinese government, it's not completely nominal, is that listing on an American stock exchange subjects you to the rules of the stock exchange, which include audits and an ability to verify those audits, which means that you've got Western auditors looking at your financial and other data. And that is a national security problem, even when they're looking at ride hailing in a company's internal data. And so as a matter of national security, they don't like people doing IPOs in the West. Didi managed, this is kind of actually, I think, shocking. Didi knew from the stories I'm reading that the Chinese government didn't want them to, do, to list uh, uh, and go for an IPO. And they stalled the Chinese government by implying that they were stopping and then rushed their IPO out. And that this may be why China is punishing them uniquely harshly in a way to demonstrate to uh, Western investors that if somebody slips an IPO past the Chinese government, the people who buy it are going to regret it. You just do not pull a fast one on the dear leader, as, as everyone knows, uh, the great leader, I should say. And that's exactly what they were doing. But by doing so, they actually probably also are getting to the crosshairs of the U.S. regulators, because even though they were aware that the Chinese regulators were putting pressure on them, not to list. They did not disclose it in their S-1 filings with a security commission, and as a result, uh, may have violated U.S. regulations. I think they're bound for delisting for a bunch of political reasons and because they won't be able to pro uh, provide the audited data that the exchanges want. Uh, Marco Rubio has already said it's crazy to have allowed the listing. This is just going to end badly for most of the VCs who hope that an IPO from uh, the Chinese company was going to be their exit. It's, it's going to be ugly. Okay, Mark, I, there's a whole bunch of like 37 states that are taking Google to court over the Play Store control. Of course, Apple famously controls its store, but Google has been claiming, hey, we don't really control our store. You can sideload, you can have a store that isn't Google. That doesn't seem to be cutting much ice with these 37 states. How come? So I, I think you're right to point out that this is similar to the to the Apple circumstance, and there already is an Apple case, the Apple Epic case, and uh, many of the same accusations are being raised in this case about uh, the, the Google Play Store. So the idea is that Google is using various practices to dominate the market for distributing the apps that will run on its own Android operating system. But it, it does this by trying to funnel all of the app purchases through its own Play Store. 
I mean, it does allow side loading and it does allow other stores such as Amazon's, but it makes it really difficult for consumers to use those alternatives. At least that's the allegation. And then, and once on the Play Store, it requires developers to use Google's own app publishing format and its own payment service. And that enables it to collect as much as 30% of the fee that app developers uh, charge their own customers. Which and coincidentally it, is what Apple's being sued for well, charging uh, Epic. Exactly. And, and be, when developers try to get around that, Google jumps in and says, no, you can't do that. It forbids the app developers from using the Play Store to tell customers to download the free app from the App Store, right, from the Play Store, but then to go to the developer's own website to download the pay. It, it, in many ways... This, this case reminds me of the Amex anti-steering rule case where Amex told merchants that accepting its card, who were accepting its card, that they couldn't ask their customers to use a cheaper form of payment or provide an incentive to do that. And it, if it ever gets to court, we might see some more clarity in connection with the Supreme Court's two-sided market analysis that it used in the Amex case to uphold Amex's anti-steering rule. I mean, the fix is really what what troubles me. I mean, people are already pointing out that the court is being asked to look into the details of how the user, you know, experiences the software on the on the Play Store. And do we really want the courts snooping around into the details of what messages are shown to users? I mean, that that kind of stuff doesn't seem like the kind of thing that courts should be involved in doing. Um, well, I, I think anybody who has used Pacer knows how good the courts are at uh, website design. There you go. <laughs> but it, it really does seem like a regulatory matter. It calls for like ongoing supervision by a regulatory agency, not a one-time decision by a court. And so that means what they really need in order to get at this kind of abuse is a regulatory a agency to handle these issues. Uh, and that's really where the kind of neo-brand I see in reformers, Tim Wu and Lena Khan, want to go. But to get there, they're going to need to have some new authority that allows them to use regulatory tools and ongoing industry supervision to promote competition through a regulatory requirement. Antitrust is currently practiced and understood, just won't allow them to do it. So it is, I'll make a historical point that you're right, this is the Neo-Brandeisians or Brandeisians. And it's worth remembering that Brandeis was a small government liberal who believed in cutting everybody down to size and having lots, that bad was really bad, big was really bad. And yet he turned out to set the table for a, a host of big government programs in the Roosevelt administration. And I, I, I can't help thinking that people who are buying the idea that antitrust is about competition are missing the ways in which, as you point out, a lot of these um, antitrust cases are really about creating ad hoc one company regulation. Yeah, the 1912 presidential election was about regulation through to promote competition or regulation to maintain monopoly. Woodrow Wilson won, and that was the philosophy that got put into place in the FTC. It's designed to be a regulatory agency with a mission to promote competition. It hasn't evolved that way, but that's what it was to begin with. And then neo-Brandeisians wanted to go back to that original mission. So there's one uh, a little note I think is curious to make in distinguishing the Apple and uh, this uh, new Google uh, Play Store case. First, I, I think that the states are going to lose both of them big time, but 
Arguably, there is a better argument in Google, I think, and it's counterintuitive. A lot of Apple's justification, their pro-competitive justification for why they have uh, these restrictions on accessing loading device uh, apps onto their device is for security and uh, vertical integration, constant, consistent look and feel of the Apple environment. And Google isn't as committed to that. They allow side loading of other apps. They allow a wider range of uh, interfaces and what's not. So the best argument in many ways that the states might have for differentiating this from uh, Apple is Google's Google has less control over the Play Store, which makes it less secure. So they don't need this money and they don't need to keep insecure apps off because it's already a less secure ecosystem. So it's a, an interesting argument, but to the extent there is a way to make this a stronger case than Apple, it's that Google sells itself as having less consistent vertical integration in its pr product ecosystem. Yeah, and so Ap Apple's argument works until it dominates the the market. And there's a pretty good argument, I think, already that when you look at revenue as opposed to unit sales, it does dominate the market. I mean, the other thing about the they don't need the money is if there was ever a phrase that, that uh, translates into price regulation, it's that. The idea that they're charging too much because they don't need the money to provide good security is exactly what a regulator would do. Exactly. It's not the kind of thing that you would really look for in an antitrust case. Right. right, where you'd expect the competition would squeeze out all that excess money they don't need. All right, Dimitri, there have been several stories about uh, autonomous weapons, and I'm just picking uh, one that appeared this week, uh, talking about the way drones were used to attack maybe completely autonomously General Hifter's forces in Libya and the remarkable impact they had on the Armenian uh, conflict. What's striking to me is that all of this is happening without much U.S. technological participation. These are mostly Turkish weapons, if I remember right. Tur Turkish and Israeli, in, in this particular article, it talks about loitering munitions, so dr drones that are autonomously flying over an area as they did in the Armenia-Azerbaijan war last year, identifying targets based on oftentimes signals, um, intelligence, and dropping munitions on them. What struck me about that article is, what is the big deal? We've had autonomous weapons for at least 800 years, starting with the development of naval mines by the Chinese in the 14th century. Torpedoes are a variant of autonomous weapons, of course, that, that has existed uh, for over 100 years. So the reality is that we've had weapons for a long time that can quote unquote act on their own with intelligence or without intelligence. And in fact, if you look at mines, they are unintelligence, autonomous weapons that don't discriminate. And it strikes me that we're actually moving in, into a, a better direction by having some intelligence and discriminatory capabilities built into those weapons compared to the dumb ones of the last uh, few hundred years. So, and, and, and I actually don't think that this move towards completely autonomous decision-making is going to get very far anytime soon. Obviously, there'll be some basic capabilities as we're seeing on the battlefield now, but we're still such a long way away from even self-driving cars where you're trying to do something that where you're not facing an adversary that's trying to ram into you and, 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 and destroy you as you might have in, in a war zone, that it's going to be a very long time before we have sort of independent thinking, AI, like Terminator, 
style AI on the back. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And my guess is DOD isn't playing in this because their uh, new equity-minded management is trying to figure out how to avoid AI bias in the choice of targets. But uh, let's do some quick hits uh, and bang through these things. The Pentagon canceled after multiple challenges, their $10 million Jedi cloud contract with Microsoft. Gus, this feels like a reward to AWS for relentlessly stalling the award. I, in many ways, this was in the cards. I think the administration wanted uh, to reopen this, but I heard a interview, I don't remember who the administration official was, but about this the other day, and he said one of the stupidest things I've ever heard come out of government officials' mouth, and that's saying something. Their vision for rebidding this is they want to have multiple vendors all collaborating to provide the new joint defense infrastructure on the grounds that they think it will be more secure to have multiple incompatible systems working together to provide the system. I My head just it boggles the mind. Yeah. I, I will say this, Gus. I, I actually take the other view here. I, I think that this was a prudent decision simply because they can now move forward with some awards without being stuck in litigation for many years. But, but also technically, I think relying for such a huge contract, too big to fail contract on one vendor was never going to be a good thing. And having competition, having multiple vendors participating and bidding on different projects. It's not gonna be one cloud built by, jointly by Microsoft or AWS, by the way. It's gonna be multiple smaller clouds to be used in different parts of the DoD. I think that's the right decision. It'll encourage both of them to keep competing, to keep trying to lower the price and uh, provide the best service. So uh, are, they, are they, in, in, let me just, for clarification, are they thinking of a kind of IDIQ, indefinite quantity, where basically you award the contract to, to 10 people and they get nothing except the opportunity to compete again for smaller contracts? Is that what they're talking about? They, they, have, they haven't talked about the details yet of how exactly they will structure it, but you could foresee something along those lines where you, you pay them to build out a cloud, just like CIA paid Amazon to build that cloud 10 years ago. But then when it's time to get it to be for, for individual use, every department, every part of the DOD would pay an individual vendor to, to, to run workloads on those clouds. And Dimitri raises a, a fair point, especially I agree about the uh, timeliness of getting this done with pending litigation and the, the prior iteration was already out of date. And we don't know the details about what the administration will be looking at. It, it's entirely possible a, a senior government lawyer didn't really understand what he was talking about as he was describing the vision, or they just haven't figured it out. But it will be interesting to see how they proceed. So one thing is sure, it won't end litigation. This administration will finish awarding that contract just in time for the litigation over the award to go to the next administration, is my guess. That's the sad story of big contracts. Although the IDIQ diminishes the incentive to challenge it because you don't actually know you've lost until you've gotten deep into the second or third round of bidding for individual pieces of the uh, the contract. So maybe if that's what they do, they'll they'll manage to get a structure in place. So Gus, we talked about Epic Games and their litigation at Apple's App Store in the US. Apparently they also have a suit in Australia which kind of just survived by the skin of its teeth 
being dismissed. Yeah, so the only real takeaway for this at this point is the news is not technical, it's procedural. The Australian suit, the underlying contract has a choice of venue clause that says you have to sue in the Northern District of California, I believe. Suit was filed in Australia, the court dismissed it, and on appeal the court has reinstated it for various reasons saying that the litigation wasn't bound by that choice of venue clause. It's nothing about the substance of the litigation at this point, so who knows what's going to happen. I expect that five years ago, I would very confidently said, I expect that whatever happens in the US litigation will be determinative, but nowadays, whatever happens in the US might cause courts and other jurisdictions to do the opposite. So we shall see. All right. So Tucker Carlson and his fight with NSA about uh, whether the NSA had records from uh, intercepting his communications. Now it turns out that this is a big surprise. His uh, show was trying to get an interview with Putin and was talking to Putin intermediaries who were then talking presumably to Putin about it. Uh, If there's anybody who thinks that we shouldn't be trying to intercept people talking to Putin, they're nuts. Uh, And so uh, it's highly likely that there are some mentions and maybe even some messages from Tucker Carlson going to Putin that were intercepted by the NSA. And both sides can turn out to be right, as I predicted uh, a week ago. Uh, So that's that's our NSA spying news. Turns out to be much less interesting than uh, Tucker Carlson wanted it to be. Twitter uh, couldn't happen to a nicer company, has lost its uh, liability protection in India, the government says, but the government doesn't get to make that decision. The courts do. The government made a filing saying that Twitter had failed to appoint a resident grievance officer and a variety of other things that it was supposed to do, a sort of 230 reform a la India. Uh, And uh, the government is now trying to take away Twitter's immunity for what its users say. And Twitter is rushing to appoint its grievance officer. And I have to say, anything that sums up Silicon Valley these days, it's having grievance officers. I, I, I predict that it won't be long before Facebook and YouTube and Twitter all have chief grievance officers, six months after which the Biden administration will appoint its own chief grievance officer to keep all of our grievances in order. That's, that's an inspiring vision, and we can thank India for that. Uh, and finally, the European Parliament has done something right, uh, and uh, so that obviously makes news. They, ex- they, they passed a law that allows comp- companies to look for child abuse efforts on their platforms because a recent, recently a taking effect a, a decree directive had been interpreted probably correctly as not allowing companies to look at context uh, and contents of communications, even when they were doing it using algorithms that were designed to flag child grooming, child abuse, uh, and the like. Parliament was uh, asked by uh, the commission to pass a law that would undo the effects of that, and in the most grudging possible way, late and with just a three-year 
a sunset. The European Parliament did it, and then they did it overwhelmingly because, of course, that they were being accused, which objectively they were, facilitating child abuse by not uh, rescinding the this piece of the, the directive. Uh, so the European Parliament, after trying every other possibility, has done the right thing, and I congratulate them with as much grudging admiration as they brought to passing the, uh, the legislation. All right. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Dimitri. Thanks to Gus for joining us. Send us questions, comments, feedbacks at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Uh, We'd love to hear from our listeners. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 370 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm -hmm.